Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, brought to you and presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I introduce to you, Brother Chris Ludke. This is Brother Chris Lickie, and today I want to explore the volume of sacred law. And today what I'm doing is I'm looking at a specific article. I'm going to be annotating it, so I'm going to be adding my thoughts as we go through it. But sometimes I find a piece of writing that so perfectly captures an idea that there's really no need to go to the lengths of adapting it, to lengthen it or shorten it. Sometimes it just gets to the point and does a really good job of it. In this case, I'm looking at an article called Three Small Letters, One Big Concept by Brother Hans Erdman. He wrote this in 2018 for Woodstock Lodge number 11. And I'm going to read through this and annotate it, both with my own thoughts, interpretations, and things that might add to the discussion. The VSL, or Volume of Sacred Law, one of our three great lights, has not always been a part of Freemasonry. The term seems to have been adapted around 1723. There was no edict or instruction from the first Grand Lodge of England, but much like uh, what we now consider, but like much of what we now consider established Freemasonry, it probably came from James Anderson's The Constitution of Freemasons, written in that year. Before then, in England and all other Christian countries, it was the Holy Bible. But even that book only takes us back less than 200 years, as the Bible, especially an English language version, was not even published until 1526 by William Tinsdale, and then it was only the New Testament. The use of this book in a Masonic Lodge would have been hazardous as, and I quote, one risked death by burning if caught in the mere possession of Tinsdale's forbidden books. At the time, we we're right around the time of the Protestant Reformation, the idea of having a book, a Bible specifically, in a vernacular language, in other words, in the local language, would have been quite a foreign concept. Even in England, it would have been problematic. And it's a form of control. But, getting past that, back to the article. The earliest manuscripts that relate to masonry and contain reference to rituals simply refer to it as the book, or a book. And that was probably their book of constitutions and charges. Although we can't be 100% sure, because they're not writing, hey, by the way, we were using Tinsdale's Bible and, you know, risking our lives in the process of doing so. Why the change to volume of sacred law rather than just saying the Holy Bible? After all, that's what's on our altars today, isn't it? One of the great changes that came into speculative masonry with the formation of the premier Grand Lodge and Anderson's constitutions was the removal of religion from the craft. In part, it reads, quote, Though in ancient times, masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree 
leaving their particular opinions to themselves. End quote. Masons were no longer required to be of one religion of their country, but rather to share a belief in the grand architect of the universe or supreme entity by whatever name they wish to use. What is the purpose of this volume of sacred law? Well, looking through ritual, you would find, among other things, that it teaches us duties we owe to God, our neighbor, ourselves. It is to be regarded as the unerring standard of truth and justice. It is to be used to rule and govern our faith. It is an essential part of the obligation. Just like the court of civil law, each obligation, including the swearing of an oath, with the right hand resting on the book, to make it binding upon the individual. It works because the book has meaning and is sacred to the individual taking the oath. But what if a man's not a Christian and the Bible has no meaning to it? That is why it is now called the volume of sacred law. Because whichever book is held sacred to that person can be used. It need not be the Bible. In lodges in predominantly Christian countries, it is the Holy Bible. But Lodges in other countries have the sacred book of their predominant religion on the altar as their volume of sacred law. One of the beauties of masonry and our tolerance of any religion that acknowledges a supreme entity is that we can accept brothers of different faiths and accommodate them by also having their sacred book open upon our altar. Let's have a quick look around the globe at some lodges in non-Christian countries to see which books use, which books they use, and some of the differences in how they're used. The following is mainly taken from an article written in 1992 by Brother Lin Bonpar, based on an earlier work by Brother F.W. Stevens, presented in 1970, with some additions and modifications. You can see things are getting pieced together here a little bit. There are seven volumes of sacred law in common, used in varying numbers through the East. They are in alphabetical order, the Bible, Old Testament for Jewish brothers, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament for Christians, the Dhammapada for Mahayana sect of Buddhism, the Gita for Hindus, the Grath Sahib for Sikhs, the Quran for Muslims, the Zenda Avesta for Parsis and some Iranians, Parsis being Zoroastrians. In 1992, at the time that this article on uh, the multiple books of uh, volumes of sacred law is written, it was thought that a lodge, Singapore Lodge 7178, was the only lodge to have all seven of these books. All are open on the pedestal, and each is treated with the same respect as they are in every way, equal to one another. In the Grand Lodge of India, where there are six volumes of sacred law, the square and compasses are placed on the volume of sacred law of the faith of the presiding officer. By the way, very similar to Wisconsin, where the volume of sacred law, which is on the Bible, reflects either the master during a stated meeting or the candidate during a degree. In Israel, where there are three volumes of sacred law, the square and compasses are placed on the Old Testament. If Christians are present, the New Testament is added. If Muslims are present, the Quran is added. 
and one large set of square encompasses covers them all. I will add that in certain jurisdictions, uh, the Tanakh is used for Jews. Because of the differences in customs in various religions, modifications are required in the method of obligation. In general, an obligation should be taken and sealed in such a way that the candidate regards it as unconditionally binding. The Christian Bible was originally used to obligate candidates only. It was not until 1760 that it became, on the proposition of William Preston, part of the, quote, furniture of the lodge. Now, of course, is always open in lodges at labor. The present-day method of obligating candidates on the Bible is well known, the posture particular to Freemasonry. In the English Constitution, the Bible is placed on the master's pedestal, although in some cases in England it may be placed on a special altar in front of the pedestal. In other British constitutions, it's placed on a separate altar in the center of the lodge room. In Ireland, additional volumes of sacred law are placed on each of the pedestals of the primary officers. The Bible is open at the Old Testament. New Brunswick is an exception to this, as the scripture opened on and used for the second degree comes from Corinthians in the New Testament. There is no official Grand Lodge ruling as to how it should be placed or the page at which it should be opened in that case. The holy book of the Muslims is the Quran, but as regards touching and sealing it, the overall picture is rather difficult as customs vary. The problem you run into is when it comes to the Quran, in many cases, the Quran cannot be touched without going through a ritualistic cleansing, which oftentimes the Kanda is not going through before coming up to the volume of sacred law. And so that obviously causes issues. In some cases, the Quran will be wrapped. In some cases, gloves will be worn. In some cases, something more symbolic will be used. It really depends on what form of Islam is practiced in that country and that country's understanding of the Quran. The Sikh religion was founded by Nanak Guru, who was born in 1469. His 10th and last successor, Govind, was assassinated in 1708 and declared the line of gurus extinct and the spiritual leadership vested in the Granth Sahib, or Holy Book, as God's representative on earth. A Sikh religious leader stated in 1952 that there is no objection to touching the book, but sealing it in the accepted manner of Masons was not permitted. He suggested that a candidate could bow in obedience to the book instead. Moving to Hinduism, the Gita goes back to 200 BC and established a permanent compromise between the belief in a personal God and the conception of an impersonal and all-pervading absolute. There are other Hindu writings originating back between 1500 and 1200 BC, but they do not acclaim the doctrines of a single deity. The Gita, in this case, must be opened and touched with the hands, but not with the lips. Candid should therefore be instructed to salute it in a manner customary to their faith. The Gita was only established as a representative Hindu volume of sacred law at the beginning of the 20th century. It's actually very, very recent. Now, there are two sects of Buddhists, and there's actually multiple sects. I'm going to step away from the article here for a second. 
There are multiple sects of Buddhism. We have Buddhism that first develops around 500 BCE and earlier in India. It travels to China. We see the development of Southern and Northern Chan Buddhism. We see the development of Zen Buddhism uh, much later on in Japan. We see all sorts of different forms as esoteric Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, etc. When you hear the term Buddhism, it does not mean one thing. Also, a second note, since we're getting into Buddhism, in the East is very common to be of what we would consider in the West multiple faiths. So you might follow Buddhism as a day-to-day sort of philosophy, but then you might go through a Shinto wedding and a Taoist funeral. There's a mix that you can have. And many of these ideas are more philosophies in the East than they are in the West, which is why you get some of the interesting interactions that we have. Now, there are, getting back to the article, two sects of Buddhists. The first, the Hinayana sect, mainly in India, Thailand, and Ceylon, which is now Myanmar, do not believe in a supreme being, and hence are not eligible to be Freemasons. That being said, Let me stop here and note. Siddhartha, uh, or the Buddha, when asked about gods, says it's completely irrelevant. Buddhism is, at its base, sort of the fundamental form of Buddhism, is agnostic. That being said, there are forms of Buddhism, such as Pure Land, where they do accept gods and the concept of a supreme being. So, it is not a simple task. You need to find out what form of Buddhism they believe in. Getting back to the article. The second, the Mahayana sect, mainly in China, Korea, and Japan, do believe in a supreme being. Their book is the Dhammapada, which is one of the 31 books that compromise the Triptaka, the three baskets that contain the essence of Buddha's teachings. However, in lodges in Kuala Lumpur, the Holy Quran is used for Muslims and the Bible for all others, Christian and non-Christian. It has been asked, why is the validity of an obligation taken by a candidate on the volume of sacred law, not of his faith, specifically, what is the validity of an obligation, excuse me, taken by a candidate on a volume of sacred law, not of his faith, specifically referring to a Buddhist taking a obligation on the Bible? The United Grand Lodge of England Constitutions, paragraph 4 of Aims and Relations of the Craft, states, quote, The Bible refers, referred to by Freemasons as the volume of sacred law is always open in the lodge. Every candidate is required to take his obligation on that book or on the volume which is held by his particular creed to impart sanctity to an oath or promise taken upon it. A Buddhist takes an obligation by going to the temple to pray, after which he makes his obligation. There is no Buddhist equivalent to the Christian method of taking an oath on the sacred writings. It is not an offense against Buddhism for a Buddhist to take an obligation on the volume of sacred law of another faith, as Buddhism is very tolerant, is a very tolerant religion, and I would put in parentheses, understood from a Western perspective more as a philosophy, and has the greatest respect for the volume of sacred law of all religions. Is such an obligation taken on a volume of sacred law of another religion binding? 
Whether an obligation is binding or not depends entirely on the sincerity of the person making the obligation. And as you'll remember, the Mason of all men should best under, understand that God seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh at the outward appearance, but God looketh to the heart. In other words, under certain circumstances, according to the English Grand Lodge Constitution, Buddhists can take their obligation on a different book, having fulfilled the need to bring in that solemnity, that obligation that uh, is so important. The main thing I want to emphasize here is that the volume of sacred law is not a specific book. As with most things Masonic, it is a symbol, a concept, an ideal that we represent with a book. Which book? Well, that ultimately depends on you and really on your lodge. And while we're on the topic of the volume of sacred law, one would not typically alternate the volume of sacred law for education or other purposes. The reason is, as I stated before, the volume of sacred law should reflect that book and the belief system belonging to either the worshipful master or the presiding officer, or second, to the candidate. So keep that in mind. Also, if you are looking in American Grand Lodges for a Quran, be careful. If it's in English, it's not a Quran. If it has a translation, it's not a Quran. You will notice most of those, all of those should, have a title saying glorious interpretation or interpretation of the Quran. It is not actually a Quran. A Quran must be written in Kufic. It must be untranslated because it can't be translated. And there are other issues that come into play here. When you have questions about the volume of sacred law, about religions that you're not familiar with and bringing in other candidates, always go to your Grand Lodge. Talk to your Grand Secretary or get in touch with the Grand Master or whomever is in the chain of command in your Grand Lodge. And at the end of the day, they should have the answers that you're looking for. My point to bringing this up is that while we tend to think of in the United States and Wisconsin of the Bible as sort of the book that belongs on the altar, in reality, it's actually much broader. It's a much more interesting issue. If you had someone who's Hindu in the East, then the Gita might be the book there, even though that may not reflect all of the members. And yet, Masonry, as universally accepting, would allow for that. Because in Masonry, at the end of the day, it's about the solemnity of the book. It's about the solemnity of the obligation or the oath. And at the end of the day, it's very much along the lines of looking at language. If I'm talking to people in different languages, they all have different words for the color blue, for example. And the same applies to God. That's the universal. Just because you may call your supreme being something different than what I call my supreme being doesn't make us lesser people because ultimately the teachings, the ideas are probably very similar. And when you look at religions, that's often the case where 90% or more generally apply. 
The golden rule applies in almost every faith I can think of, just as one example. So Masonic universality and Masonic acceptance is something that sets us apart. It is something that makes us special, makes us different, and makes us uniquely qualified to be that unifying force in the world, especially in these difficult and divisive times. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org. That's wimasons.org to learn more about masonry and access further educational content and further lighten masonry. Thank you for listening. <laughs>